You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 11th of December 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. They both come across as very much their own people and to an extent isolated. Neither of them comes across particularly well as a team player. It's the last day of campaigning for the UK election. My guests Lance Price and Mary Dijewski will discuss that and the day's other stories, including the latest on Donald Trump's dealings with Russia, the ones we know about anyway, and Emmanuel Macron protests and pensions. Will the French leader be retiring early? Plus, little did I know that the Japanese experience often involves many things that aren't actually from within its borders at all. We head to the shops in Japan. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Lance Price, former director of communications at 10 Downing Street, and Mary Dijewski, journalist and former foreign correspondent. Welcome both. We will start here in the UK, where we are now one day away from a general election and possibly about three months from another one. It is fair to say that the campaign has not been a great advertisement for British democracy in much the same way. It is fair to say that goats cannot juggle. Weirdly, given that the two prospective prime ministers from whom we are being invited to pick are both two put it charitably divisive figures, this has been arguably the most leader-focused presidential-style campaign in British history. Uh, Lance, why has this happened? Are both parties basically assuming that the voters don't really understand policy or care about it? No, I think they uh, do think that people care about policy. And actually, I think it has been a fairly policy-driven election campaign, um, bizarrely. Now, whether those policy offerings are credible from the political parties is another matter. But uh, Boris Johnson, the uh, outgoing prime minister who's hoping to be re-elected tomorrow, uh, has made the policy on Brexit his his centrepiece. And uh, he's actually been spraying around quite a lot of other policies in, in, in a way that is relatively incontinent for a uh, Conservative Party leader. And um, on the other side, Labour's manifesto is policy rich to the point of being um, uh, almost indigestible. Uh, Mary, do you get the sense, though, that the, the leaders around whom there is a, a personality cult of sorts in both cases, are they reacting to each other? Would Boris Johnson be Boris Johnsoning it quite to this extent if he wasn't facing Jeremy Corbyn? Um, and, and how much of Jeremy Corbyn's campaign has been an attempt to depict him as very much not Boris Johnson? I'm not too sure about that because I think when you look at the um, my the theories two, are getting shot down in flames <laughs> this morning. <laughs> the, two, the two leaders of the uh, uh, of the main parties, um, they both come across as very much their own people, and to an extent isolated. Neither of them comes across particularly well as a team player, and both of them were surrounded by people who were rather gaff prone um, even before the beginning of the campaign. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn lost his deputy. Um, um, a few days before the before the campaign, um, Boris Johnson has exiled various people who were seen as maybe key members of his campaign, um, and the result is that you've got really the two party leaders. Um, even before you had um, debates, rather, I think the first time in the UK that you've had debates along the lines of American style debates. Mm. Um, you've also got 
to my mind at least, a very clear um, choice between left and right, between Corbynite Labour, between Boris Johnsonite um, Tory. Um, and to my mind, this has really been the most American-style campaign I remember seeing in the UK. Um, and it's interesting when they've been racing around the country um, that when you to, when when there are vox pops and people have talked to voters spoken to they tend to refer to the party leaders rather than referring to the the, the particular fights in their own constituencies. So that you know when you go to vote, everybody will be voting in a constituency for their local MP. But this time it strikes me not necessarily for the first time, but more than ever before, they'll have at the back of their mind the party leaders. Uh, Lance, when you look at those two party leaders, and if you think about this as a, a former professional political operative, uh, how would you go about managing... There's a balance, isn't there? Both of them are clearly an asset in some respects, but both of them also, I think, bring extraordinarily, uh, in the terms of British politics, uh, liabilities to the job. It's quite impossible to imagine that anybody in the country at this point doesn't have family, fairly firm opinions one way or the other about both men. It, when you have a, a character like a Boris Johnson or a Jeremy Corbyn, uh, how much of that is an asset and how much of it is a liability? Um, I think in this particular campaign, it's more liability than it is asset, because the assets that they both carry have probably already been banked by the political parties. Mm. So those people who are big fans of Jeremy Corbyn and sing those awful chants every time he appears <laughs> um, uh, are going to vote for him anyway. Uh, and people who like Boris uh, are in the Tory camp, and they probably like Boris mainly, well, for two reasons. One, because he's a bit of a character, um, which uh, clearly is um, a matter of taste, uh, but also because he's so closely identified with um, with Brexit and, and the slogan of getting Brexit done. Uh, the reason I'm not quite convinced by the idea that this is a US presidential election style campaign um, is that if it were then you would have your you would, your candidates would be your best selling point and in, in a sense in this election I don't think the candidates are the best selling point. I think they, people's reservations about both of them are so intense that actually they're asking people to vote, the parties are asking people to vote for them in spite of their leaders uh, undecided voters, the swing voters in spite of their leaders rather than because of their leaders and if it is a presidential style uh, election. I think it's a bit more like a French presidential style election, <laughs> whereby we're now in the second round and everyone's first options have now been ruled out. <laughs> and, and you have to choose between the least of two evils. Well, I think I'd, I'd make two responses to that. First of all, would that we had an Emmanuel Macron? <laughs> that would be the first thing. The second thing is I'm not completely convinced that at least the last American presidential election wasn't a choice between two fairly bad offerings, if you think about Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. Uh, that is true, Mary. In fact, I mean, yeah, two very uh, well-known candidates about whom everybody had formed a fairly fixed opinion at this point. Is there a case with this election, and just to pick up on what Lance said, and this is, it's not scientific, but it may be indicative, both the Conservative and Labour leaflets I have had through my front door have borne remarkably little in the way of mentions of the party leader or photos of the party leader, and a general sense that both candidates would rather you preferred 
that you would forget that the party leaders existed. But are we watching in this campaign two men being found out uh, for different reasons and in different ways. Boris Johnson, of course, has been very well known uh, in Britain for a very long time, but mostly as a, a, a professional clown, buffoon and so forth, and now all of a sudden finds himself in an extremely serious situation. Uh, and Jeremy Corbyn, who only became a national figure quite recently, but again, I, I get the impression that there's less of a tendency to indulge his, let's call them his foibles, uh, this time than there was last time he faced the electorate. Well, I think in one way, we're starting to get a much clearer and much more immediate um, view of what average voters think just because of social media. People go on social media and they tell it like it is. And we haven't really seen that very often in, 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 in the past. Um, so I think maybe um, it's hard to compare now and then. Um, but I also think there's, th th there's another aspect to that, which is that people have factored in um, the negative aspects of their particular candidate. So people who, are, who may be inclined to vote Corbyn know the negative sides or what they see as the negative sides. And the same with Boris Johnson. And what I find quite remarkable, actually, is how forgiving people are of the negative aspects of, the, uh, uh, of both of them. Well, fact. final quick thought on exactly that point, Lance, and this is my own somewhat bleak interpretation of events and I've wondered about this a lot since Donald Trump was elected in the United States and people sort of wringing their hands about why are people voting for this obviously flawed character despite his manifold terrible flaws to what extent are people voting for obviously flawed candidates not despite their deficiencies but in fact because of them a few people are doing that but I think an awful lot of people are voting against the alternative. So they find the prospect of Jeremy Corbyn, whether it's the alleged um, uh, sympathy with terrorists in the past or anti-Semitism, whatever it might be, intolerable. Or they find Boris Johnson, the idea of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister, intolerable. And therefore, they will hold their nose and vote for the other guy. Uh, just a very finally on this, a quick answer from each of you about where you will be voting to convey a slice of British electoral life to our, our international audience. What is your local polling station? Mine, I will confess up front will be the library on the high road in Leytonstone. Mary, where will you be voting? Mine will be Millbank Primary School in Westminster. Um, and it's a very strange experience because you go into basically the hall of a primary school, which is decked out with all sorts of um, infant-style pictures. Um, and everything's in miniature, except that the, de except the desks <laughs> that they've put in for the, for, for, for the, um, for the officers who check your, um, your, your registration. Um, so it's interesting. It, it's, it's really a very strange meeting of two worlds. And Lance? Uh, mine, like millions of other people, uh, is and already has been my living room because I've already voted and I've voted by post <laughs> as, as millions and millions of people do. Teachers and the sooner, we have, the sooner we have internet voting as well so that... That will encourage younger voters, I think, to be more active in, in, in uh, general election yes, campaigns. Yes, it's beyond time that we had e-voting and the idea that nobody's actually considering it. Mary Dijewski and Lance Price will be back with more from you both in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Yolene Goffan with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. A report by the Committee to Protect Journalists says China has imprisoned at least 48 journalists over the course of the year. It means the country displaces Turkey as the most oppressive place to practice the profession. The CPJ estimates that 250 journalists have been imprisoned globally since January. 
New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern says her newly announced Finnish counterpart, Sana Marin, doesn't need the help of other leaders. It follows a suggestion from Malaysia's 94-year-old Prime Minister, Mahathir Mohamad, that Marin should ask old people for their advice. And as you've just been hearing, the leaders of the UK's main parties are making their final push ahead of tomorrow's general election. Labour's Jeremy Corbyn says his party can win the contest, while his conservative rival Boris Johnson is promising to get Brexit done. Both men say the election is the most important in a generation. And finally, an all-electric powered seaplane has taken flight in Vancouver. The craft's operator say the voyage is a world first for the aviation industry and a step towards building an all-electric commercial fleet. It's thought the seaplane could help cut carbon emissions in the high-polluting aviation sector. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Yolene. You're listening to Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Mullet here with Lance Price and Mary Dejewski. Let's move along from the depressing choice between populist charlatans this country is being asked to make and look at the latest from a country which has already chosen its populist charlatan. US President Donald Trump has been meeting with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov at the White House. Historically, such encounters have not gone brilliantly. Last time in 2017, Trump appeared to cheerfully grass up classified intelligence sharing arrangements. This meeting was held behind closed doors, so it is unclear what they discussed. The White House claimed that President Trump warned against any Russian attempts to interfere in US elections, so it obviously wasn't that. Um, Mary, was this controller Lavrov delivering Agent Trump his latest instructions from Moscow Center? It's very, very hard to tell what's going on. I mean, the timing of the meeting was said to be sort of coincidental that it had been planned for a long time. And it was formally, it was a meeting at foreign minister level. So it was actually Pompeo who Lavrov was there to meet. And the meeting with with, with Trump was sort of, uh, for Lavrov, presumably a bit of a bonus. Um I would think that one of the more interesting things that might have been discussed and might have been significant um, was nothing to do with um, with the American election coming, but that Lavrov might have been able to give um, a readout of some variety on the Normandy format talks between Russia and Ukraine, which were the first of their mm-hmm. type that happened on Monday, and in which, of course, the United States has a double interest, not just in, as it were, the real Ukraine, but because of all the all the idiocy going on with the um, impeachment and the way that Ukraine has sort of come into that. Uh, Lance, speaking with your former political operatives hat on, how clever are the optics of holding a meeting like this on the same day that the House unveils articles of impeachment, obviously brought about at least in part by Donald Trump's, let's say, unusual relationship with Russia? Well, the potential for the optics to be good clearly was there. And that's what is so extraordinary about the way in which this meeting has been handled, because we don't know what was discussed. I can't think of a single meeting that President Trump has had with anybody in his entire life, well, recently anyway, that he hasn't tweeted about or he hasn't sought to exploit in some way or he hasn't sought, sought to make news out of either by attacking the person he was meeting or saying how brilliant he was to have been able to secure the meeting in the first place or about some fantastic deal that was on the way. He did none of those things and he did none of those things on a day when you would have thought that anything that distracted attention away from the announcement of the uh, uh, charges that he's going to face in the impeachment hearings would have been a good thing. So um, it's no surprise therefore that the conspiracy theories are sort of swirling around about 
about what these two guys were actually up to. Uh, Mary, as a, as a general observation, though, from your, your role as a, a long-time Russia boffin, um, has Trump's you know, quite well-established pattern of very weird grovelling to Vladimir Putin actually improved US-Russia relations or not? Well, no. I mean, the appalling thing is that to, to a large extent it's rebounded um, because ever since Trump came to office, um, his opposition within the Republican Party, within all practically every institution of, of the United States, has been out to stop him doing what he said he wanted to do when he came to office, which was to improve relations with Russia. Um, so what we're seeing now with, with, with impeachment is in a way the latest stage in that whole saga. Um, but I think there's the, 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 there's another aspect which um, about the meeting with Lavrov that there that there was some discussion about whether um, it shouldn't have been on the record whether we should know more about these meetings um, and I think there is there is as I have misgivings about that. Yes, it would be wonderful to to learn what they talked about, and it's amazing that Trump hasn't tweeted about it. Maybe he's losing his touch, um, but. Every time people say, and this this applies to UK governments down the years as well, um, when people say, you know, there should be proper records of this, these meetings should be minuted, and it's appalling for whatever reason that it wasn't. Um, and one of the ones that was, um, there was huge reluctance to let into the public domain was George Bush and Tony Blair on the subject of the Iraq war. Um, but then the, the 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 reverse the response comes back yes but those sort of things can't be made public automatically because then nobody's going to talk about anything and we're never going to the, 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 if you make everything public then nobody is going to talk confidentially about anything um and and that is supposedly um, a downside in international diplomacy. Okay, well, finally to France, where there are mass protests. Now, one realises that this is like teeing up a discussion item by saying, finally to the Arctic islands of Nunavut, where there is snow. But the current mass protests in France are massive, even by the standards of French protests. There has now been a solid week of strikes, walkouts, pickets, demonstrations and sundry brouhaha in response to planned reforms to France's pension system, which, to reduce the complexities to their essence are likely to mean French workers having to work longer. Um, Lance, can Macron actually ride this out? Is he going to have to make a choice perhaps between getting this done and getting re-elected? No, because I think his only chance of getting re-elected is to get this done. I think that this is his almost his only mandate. He, uh, he, was, uh, he ran uh, to be president as a reformer uh, and wanting to change so much about uh, French uh, uh, the benefit system in particular, I suppose, of which pensions is, is one, that if he were to back away from this, people would turn around and say, what is the point of President Macron? Um, now, every other president that I can think of, Mayor is uh, much more experienced in French politics than me, but I mean, every other president that I can think of has backed down, whether it was hardliners like Sarkozy or Chirac, uh, or people on the left like 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 Mitterrand or, or Jospin, they all back down. Um, and uh, Macron has sold himself from the very start of his presidential ambitions as being different from that um, uh, 
terrible consensus. He's he's trying to do sort of 40 years late what Margaret Thatcher did in, in the United Kingdom, um, curtail the power of the unions. He's doing it in a much more, or trying to do it in a much more consensual way than Margaret Thatcher ever did by saying this is just about equality and fairness and let's treat all workers the same um, uh, and end the special privileges. And those special privileges are very, very hard to defend. Uh, I think it's become something much bigger than that, as it always does um, in France with these protests, in that people may not actually be able to defend those special privileges, but they simply feel that the government isn't on their side um, and that they are giving tacit or real support to the protesters um, uh, because they feel that the government may come for them next. Uh, Mary, you were reporting from Paris during at least one previous uh, iteration of this row because the the French have been around this before. Is it a specifically French thing or is this the French iteration of a global issue? Because France's official official retirement age rather is 62, which is kind of ridiculous. Well, I think the um, the actual ridiculousness of these particular protests is that it's now 15 years. I mean, the last big demonstrations on exactly this issue, which brought Paris to a complete halt when I was there in, in, in 95. Um, it was about the same issue, the same unions. Um, and it's not even the whole of the public sector. It's not the whole of France. It's very particular unions representing very particular interest groups, um, mostly railway workers and transport workers, who are hugely privileged and who retire between 50, 55 and 57 on full pensions. So we're not even talking about 62. 62 is what it might eventually get to. Um, But the interesting thing is that, as Lance said, um, Macron came to office with this as one one of the issues that he was elected on and which he has a mandate to do something about. One of the first things he did when he arrived at the Elysee was to call in leaders of these particular unions, get them around the table and have informal chats to them. And it looked as though he thought maybe he'd sort of softened them up and this, the, he, he would sort of deal with this. I mean, Macron is very, he goes about things in a very, he thinks about how to approach things and he goes about things in a very strategic way. Um, but it looks as though he's miscalculated here because the result is is exactly the same result as it was in 95, but a bit later in his term as president. Because when in 95, Chirac had almost only just come to office, Juppé was prime minister, and Juppé had to resign because Paris was basically at a complete halt for nearly a month. Mary Dijewski and Lance Price, thank you both. In a moment, we'll be hearing about retail in Japan. You're listening to Monocle's Houseview. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's Houseview. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco explains why shopping in Japan can provide a masterclass in promoting global culture. 
During my first trip to Japan, I was very excited to get the full experience, tasting the delicacies of the nation's cuisine, visiting the best record shops in Tokyo, and taking my first Shinkansen. Yet, little did I know that the Japanese experience often involves many things that aren't actually from within its borders at all. At the food hall of department store Isetan, you will spot many French pastries that are as tasty and delightful as those found in Paris. In fact, in their Japanified version, all delicately wrapped in beautiful packaging, they might even be better than their original counterparts. And there's a bigger selection to boot. And it's not just pastries. Italian food is another Japanese obsession. The pasta and pizza here are entirely irresistible. Toast is taken very seriously here too. It's not at all a gimmick. Then there's the amazing selection of Brazilian music. Browsing through bookshop Daikanyama T-Site or Tower Records, I spotted albums by artists whose works it would be impossible to find in my São Paulo hometown. Ditto for excellent American vintage fashion. Head to Coenge's second-hand shops for proof. If you're wondering how Japan manages to do other countries better than they do themselves, it's actually very simple. Just apply the country's trademark perfectionism to foreign products, food and culture. No matter if you're dining at excellent Italian-Japanese restaurant Signale Enoteca or tucking into a juicy bratwurst, you can be sure that they will be just as good as the delicacies found in Rome or Berlin. Or, probably, even better. For Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. That was Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs, where Daniel Bates will be joined by the CEO of the Fender guitar company, Andy Mooney. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>